you are trapped more when things are good than when you are totally down and out and have nothing to lose. The scariest place you can be, quite honestly, is that no man's land of good. That's where most people get stuck. You have the desire to create financial freedom, but you also want to make a powerful, positive impact on the world. This podcast exists to tell the inspiring stories of men and women who have achieved both, people who do well and do good. Discover proof that individuals have the ability to make a massive impact. Brought to you by your host, Dorothy Ilson. Hey everyone, my name's Dorothy, I'm your host, and this is episode 24 of the Do Well and Do Good podcast. Now, I don't think I have ever been so excited to introduce our guest. He's someone who I have looked up to for a long time, and whenever you hear people talk about him, the one thing that comes up again and again and again is what a massive heart that he has. See, His passion for giving, for helping other people, for generosity, it permeates everything that he does. His name is Chris Harder. And after an 11-year career as an executive and partner in the banking industry, Chris had a problem. See, he had achieved a great deal of success, but he lacked fulfillment and was completely burned out. He ended up taking a complete 180, retired from banking, and partnered with his wife, Lori, on her brand, LoriHarder.com. Together, they grew two multi-million dollar brands, and Chris finally found that fulfillment and purpose he had been missing in banking. Chris also hosts the hit podcast, For the Love of Money, which just last month was listed by Forbes as one of the six best podcasts for your life and career. Absolutely amazing. His show is incredible for helping people bust through their money blocks and showing that money is actually a tool for good in a world with many, many needs. Chris has had a tremendous impact on so many lives, including mine. So it is an absolute honor to share with you this conversation. Without further ado, here's my talk with Chris. Chris, I have wanted to interview you since the moment I discovered your show, and I was absolutely blown away listening to you and Lori speak on stage at the Thrive Conference in September. So thank you for being here. Dorothy, totally my pleasure. It was awesome meeting you there. And and when I heard about your show, I was like, duh, I would love to be on. Like, it's a perfect fit. So (laughs) Awesome. Well, I would love to spend most of our time together actually going deep into some of these common money blocks. But Before we do that, I want to give you the opportunity to expound on your story a little bit and share any context that might be helpful for our listeners before we dive in. Yeah. So, you know, I tell my story so many times on on so many shows out there that it's best if I just kind of give you the high level overview and that any parts that you want to do a deep dive in, we can totally do that. Does that sound good? Sounds great. So Midwest born and raised, actually, we're talking about that offline. And the cool thing about the Midwest is this. I feel like you grow up with really good morals, really good work ethic, really good like family values, and a lot of grit. And if you can take that to the coasts, then that's like the most dangerous one-two punch that you can possibly have. Because on the coasts, it goes from good opportunity to great opportunity, right? And that's exactly what Lori and I have done. But the path to getting there has been a crazy one. You know, I'm a college dropout. When I say I'm a college dropout, I mean, I was literally booted out of college after two and a half years for just partying too much and not caring about my grades. Matter of fact, the very last semester, I never even bought books for. Isn't that wild? (laughs) No kidding. And I I remember when I was booted out of college, my parents were devastated. Like this was going to be the end of my life. And for me, I was happy secretly. 
because I didn't want to be there. I already wanted to be out in the economy, like participating, making money, doing the do. I had that inner drive right away. So I felt like learning was a waste of time at the time. So uh, what logical job did I go get? Well, I loved cars. So I'm like, well, I'm going to go get a job in car sales. The sky's the limit. You make whatever you want. And when I got into car sales, I learned two things. Number one, I learned sales. And number two, I learned leadership because I got promoted to run the finance department. And I feel like if you can learn sales and leadership, you can write your ticket anywhere. And once I learned those two things, about a year and a half in, all of my friends were starting to get into the big mortgage boom that was starting. And of course, I wanted to make extra money, so I wanted to be involved in that. So I talked my way into a job. Remember, I'm a college dropout, so I wasn't qualified. Talked my way into a job as an entry-level loan officer at the, world, at the time, the world's biggest bank. And it was there that I just like took off like a rocket. I actually became one of the fastest rising executives at the world's biggest bank. And it was awesome for like the first seven years. It was positive and it was all about running sales teams and motivation and teaching and the whole nine yards until the recession hit. And when the recession hit, it's like everything positive turned off like a faucet. And I spent the next year flying around, getting up first thing in the morning, getting on an airplane, flying to some random city like Rapid City, South Dakota or wherever, walking into their bank branch and saying, guys, I'm shutting you down today and I'm going to you know, meet with each of you one-on-one and I'm going to let you know what your severance package is and answer your questions. And that went on for a year. And during that year, I gained about 30 pounds. And, and during that year, I became miserable. And during that year, it was the hardest you know, on our marriage. And, and everything about that year was just rock bottom. And here's what made it worse. I was managing our finances totally irresponsible. You know, I was young as in my 20s. Every year I'd get a massive promotion, a massive raise. So I thought this was going to last forever. So I used to joke, I'm not spending this year's money, I'm spending next year's money. Building huge homes and having multiple cars and like just stupid, stupid care of, of the money. And so when all of my bonuses shut off and then at the end of that year of letting everybody go, when it became my turn to get let go, that became our new financial rock bottom. And we had to take my multi, multi six-figure severance package use it to pay off everything. We were still below zero, moved to a tiny little apartment in Minneapolis, Minnesota. And that's where we started over. But here's the cool part. When you are stripped of your identity, because at the time, my identity was what? What is your title? How many people do you manage? What is your bonus? How much are you making? When you're stripped of those very shallow or false identities, you get the chance to choose how you want to show up in the world. And so this was our chance, me and Lori, my wife, so this was our chance to say, wait a minute, here's a reset button. How do we want to show up and what do we want to accomplish going forward? Now, listen, it's never that clean, right? It's not like we sat down and had that exact conversation, but in essence, that's what happens. And that became her chance to say, you know what? I'm going to pursue my passion, which at the time was fitness and now became self-development. And she became the Lori Harder that everyone knows now. And that was my chance to say, I really want to pursue this path of entrepreneurship. And I started going down that path. And while there are a lot of roller coaster moments along that path, here we are now eight to nine years later, eight years later, and literally living the life of our dreams and being able to create more impact than we ever thought was possible. So it's been a wild ride, but that's how we ended up here. It's an unbelievable story. And there are so many places that I would love to take that. I'm curious though, growing up in, in that Midwestern environment, what beliefs about money were ingrained in you growing up? So I'm always scared to stereotype, but I'm going to put it out there for the people that need to hear this, okay? Because every area of the U.S. and every area of the world, quite honestly, but every every area of the U.S. has different views of what's acceptable and has different views of money and has different views of success. 
And like I said earlier in my story, what I love about the Midwest is you learn like great family values and great morals and great work. You, you learn awesome things that are very valuable. But one of the areas of opportunity there, meaning one of the things that's missing is supporting people who are the big dreamers, the big thinkers, you know, supporting the people that don't want to wake up and, and have a race to two kids and a mortgage right away. Like creating enough opportunity where you don't feel like an outcast because you're thinking so big that people think you're weird. They say things like, what's wrong with you? Why don't you just want to have a home like this? Or what's wrong with you that you don't want to spend more time with your family, with your friends, that you don't want to go to happy hour? You know, why does everything have to be so big, so grand? It almost suppresses. And again, I'm always scared to stereotype, but for those that need to hear this, it almost suppresses your big dreams and your money mindset and says you have to fit within this box. It's okay to make some extra money. It's okay to be Midwest wealthy, but you must fit within this box to fit into our friendships here. And if you want to bust through this box, well, there must be something wrong with you. And that's what starts to happen is you say, maybe I'm weird or maybe I'm different or maybe there's something wrong with me until you get to one of the coasts where you realize just how small you are playing and just how big they force you to dream if you want to fit in with the cool kids, so to speak, right? And just how acceptable it is to say you want to change the world or be a billionaire or create a foundation or do these things that everybody is doing out here. And it goes from you thinking that you're weird to you realizing that you are just in the wrong place if that's the level at which you are thinking. Now, there's an exception to every rule. There are remarkable world-changing human beings in the Midwest. So this is not a broad stroke of the brush, but this is an epidemic that is going on in areas that are more conservative and quick to judge. Yeah, I mean, I, I can understand how someone might hear that the wrong way. But for me, growing up in Ohio, it makes complete sense. And I, I also went to college in Ohio. I went to Miami University. And my goal from freshman year was, okay, you know, what's going to be a career where I'm going to, I'm going to make good money. I'm going to be successful. And I picked accounting. And so I studied accounting and it was just laser focused the whole time on, I need to get a job with a big four accounting firm because it has to be big four or bust. And that's, that's what you do. And, and so I did that. I did my internship at PwC here in Chicago and accepted a full-time job offer. But then my senior year, it was, right after winter break, my senior year, I was introduced to a network marketing company. And for the first time, really, it meant I was introduced to personal development. And that just completely flipped my world on its head. And I asked myself, you know, wait, is accounting going to actually make me happy? And I didn't really like the answers that were coming up. And so, you know, that was in many ways, one of the best times of my life. I just immersed myself in, in personal growth. Um, but there were hard parts to it as well. I mean, in my business fraternity, I'll never forget this. They did like senior superlatives for us. And mine was most likely to start a Ponzi scheme. <laughs> oh my God, that's awesome. <laughs> yeah. Just a big thinker, maybe to the edge, right? <laughs> and then when I quit, I, I ended up calling up PwC two weeks after graduation and telling them I wasn't coming. And I didn't know what I was going to do, but I knew what I was not going to do. And, and that was really tough for my parents to swallow, really tough for a lot of people in my life to swallow. And so I definitely understand what you're saying there. Listen, this is not a condemnation of anybody's dreams. This is not a judgment of, of what anybody wants to perceive as success. That's the freaking cool thing about this world is all versions of success, all definitions of success are acceptable to each their own. 
what this is, is a wake up call speaking to anyone who felt like I did that was in an area, like you said, where the dream is to go climb the corporate ladder and have a nice, safe, secure career and a nice, safe, secure home and fit within a certain box, but make sure you're towards the top of the box, right? This is a wake up call for anyone who said, F that box. Like, I want to own the box. I deserve to be way up here outside of the box, right? So this is speaking to the people that might feel like what's wrong with me that I want to do something bigger, badder, louder, faster, crazier than the other people around me. That's really what we're talking about. Completely agree. And I, I know friends of mine who you know, did go down that path uh, and you know, went to the big four, all that, and they, and they love their jobs. So I completely agree with you. It's so individual. Well, so Chris, when it comes to money mindset, you know, this is something that is really the focus of your podcast and a lot of what you teach people about. And so I'm curious, you know, what would you say is the most common money block that, that people tend to harbor that, that you help people work through? What a great question. The biggest blockage of having a bigger, more expansive money mindset is your tribe. Hands down. There's nothing that will suppress your thoughts and what you think you are capable of doing or deserve to do or what you think is possible than your tribe that you hang around on a regular basis. Then, then the propaganda that you are allowing to seep into your pores on a regular basis. I'll give you an example. If you hang around everybody that wants to make $200,000 a year and they think $200,000 a year is knocking it out of the park, then whether you want to make a million dollars a year or not, you're going to kind of settle in with that group that's making $200,000 a year because subconsciously you don't want to stand out too far above them. And because you're not going to be running around with the tribe that's going to give you million dollar ideas if they're making a hundred or $200,000. You're not going to hang around a tribe that has million dollar habits and you're not going to be able to learn what it takes to get there if you're hanging around people doing a hundred or $200,000. Again, this is not a judgment of where somebody's at because there's so many different cool definitions of success in life. This is speaking to the people that say, I want to know how to make a million or 5 million or 10 million or a hundred million, right? They want to adjust their money mindset to there, except if your tribe hasn't been there, then they can't help you get there. And it's your job, right? You asked what the biggest block is. It's your job to transcend your current tribe and find those that are going to be able to seep into your actions, your beliefs, your pores, so that you have the million dollar support or the $10 million support or the $100 million support in order to get there. I've lived this, right? So let me be super transparent. When I dropped out of college, I remember thinking if I could get maybe two little rental houses and each one would give me a profit of like $800 a month, that'd be $1,600 a month. And then if I worked a job over here and I was able to make 50 grand a year, right, which is about four, 4,500 a month, I would now be up to six or $7,000 a month. And with that six or $7,000 a month, I could build this ranch home over here and I could have two cars. I could have this much money left over and that'd be comfortable. I remember thinking that at like 21 years old. And then I transcended to, wait a minute, I want to make six figures because I started to hang around people in the banking business that were all making six figures. So it became normal that I would make six figures too. Then I got there. And then I remember thinking, if only I made, this is such a random number. If only I made $350,000 a year, 
everything would be comfortable and taken care of forever. When I was thinking that, at that time, we we're always bumping up against 300, 280, 290, bumping up against 300 at that time. I was still in banking. And I remember just thinking, 350 is the number where everything is set. But then I moved into, so this is interesting, when I moved into that little apartment in Minneapolis, I purposely moved into the tiniest little studio apartment in a building that was full of millionaires above me. I knew that having them as my neighbors, that I would be able to totally up-level my thinking and my habits, and it would be what would lift me above where I was at before. So we moved into this tiny little apartment. We prepaid it for an entire year with money that we borrowed from my parents in order to say, okay, we got one year worth of runway to be around these people and to up-level our performance. And I was hanging around people that were making seven figures. And so it became part of my DNA that I should expect to make seven figures. Like I was embarrassed that I wasn't. Here I am at the brokest moment of my life, not embarrassed that I'm, or embarrassed that I'm not making seven figures. Isn't that crazy? But that's what happens when the other people around you on a regular basis, the building Christmas party, when you're walking your dogs, you're doing all that. When they around you are making seven figures, you're like, wait, why am I not? I'm a little embarrassed that I'm not. So then get this. And I, I always invite people to find me in their story, right? So Lori and I were making about $100,000 a month, pretty good living, living in Minneapolis when we moved up to California. And we thought that was a lot of money. And listen, it is a lot of money based on what you want to do. But again, Lori and I were huge thinkers. And we moved up to California. And we went from thinking that $100,000 a month was a lot of money to realizing this condo building that we had moved into in Santa Monica, which is one of the wealthiest cities in the whole world, that we were the brokest people in that building. I mean, the entire parking garage is nothing but Bentleys and Rolls Royces and Ferraris and Lamborghinis and Range Rovers and everything else. Like Range Rover was the taxi cab of Santa Monica is our joke. And so in that building, I realized that, wait a minute, squeaking over a million dollars is not a lot of money. These people are making five, 10, 15, 20, 25, a hundred million dollars. How do I get there? And I'd walk my dogs with them and I'd talk to them in the building and I'd go to lunch with them. And because I was around those people, that became our new expectation of ourselves. Now, I hang out with, when I go to dinner with, I hang out with people that are, have net worth of $100 million or more on a regular basis. So now I beat myself up over, why aren't I doing the things and creating the companies to get there? And I know that in a very short time, Lori and I will do the right things to get there. So it's nothing more than a component. You ask what the block is. The block is who is influencing your thoughts, influencing your perception, influencing your habits on a regular basis. And they are not malicious. They don't know they're holding you back, right? They're trying their hardest. They're living a good life. They're giving you good advice. It has nothing to do with them doing something wrong and everything to do with you needing to seek out that next level to make that next level be real to you. Yeah. And that is why there's so much power in, in some of the organized structures that exist to help change your tribe. So things like masterminds, which I know you yes. run one yourself. And so I think that part of what makes people so uncomfortable about this conversation, about wanting more and even imagining having more, we're almost conditioned to, to feel like that's selfish or that's wrong or it's, it's shameful. And so really my vision with this show and, and what you're doing absolutely with For the Love of Money is showing people that when you create more in your life, it allows you to do so much more to give and to help others and, and to serve. Could you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, for sure. So this is the great irony in the world. It's selfish to want more. It's selfish to accumulate more. 
except if you are a good person with a good heart and you have causes you care about, you cannot create a big impact for those causes without more. Let's, let, let's give a real life example. If you're living paycheck to paycheck and you care so much about, give me a cause you care about, Dorothy. Poverty, child poverty. You care about poverty, inner city poverty, but you're living paycheck to paycheck. How much impact can you really make for inner city poverty? Sure, you can go down and volunteer on Wednesdays. You can hand out food. All of those are outstanding things. I highly encourage that. But can you really cure or change the tide of poverty? Or can you just put Band-Aids on it if you're living paycheck to paycheck? You can just put Band-Aids on it, right? What if you have a little bit of excess money? What if you're able to donate, I don't know, $100 a month towards something? Is that good and needed? Absolutely. Every bit counts. But is that going to turn the tide of a cause that you care about? Is that going to create a cure? Absolutely not. Now, what if you can write five-figure checks? Are you going to cure or turn the tide of a cause you care about? No, but you're starting to make a hell of an impact. What if you can write six-figure checks? Are you going to cure it or change the tide? Yeah, you start to create an awful lot of influence on the programs out there with six-figure checks. What about seven and eight-figure checks? So you show that, I'm able to show you that if you care about things in this world, and everybody does, right? If you care about things in this world, then you need to be selfless enough to do the work it takes to create enough of that tool called money that can go and create the change that you want to see in the world. Otherwise, you're just handing out food, which is a very awesome, noble thing, but that's putting a Band-Aid on the problem. It's not solving the problem. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it completely makes sense. And you know, I definitely don't pretend to have all of my own money issues sorted out. And one of the ones that I have really had to face in doing this podcast is around you know being public about giving. So on the show, as you know, we have the Do Well and Do Good Challenge. And every month I donate uh, 10% of my agency's income to one of the nonprofits nominated by our guests. So cool. And that's something, you know, I'd, I'd been doing that privately for some time, you know, before starting the podcast. And when I decided to make it a part of the show, there has definitely been a lot of emotions that I've had to deal with around feeling embarrassed, feeling awkward around, you know, promoting that piece of, of what I'm doing. Why do you think there is so much shame tied to giving publicly and how can we start to turn that around? You know, the people that are making you feel shameful about it are the people that have not yet faced their own money mindset issues. And so you're holding a mirror back to them. When you start to talk about these things out loud, they start to say, wait a minute, you're exposing the fact that I'm not doing it and talking about it. How dare you? So they have to make you wrong for doing it so that they can stay comfortable in their actions. Isn't that crazy? That, and this goes back to where you live. So people in the Midwest think people on the coasts are too loud and brash, too showy, right? People on the coasts think people in the Midwest are too, or even the deep South are too judgmental. When I did my seven day generosity challenge, I received DM after DM after DM about people quoting Bible verses and all this other stuff. And by the way, I believe in God. I pray every single day, multiple times. But Bible verses and all this other crap about it's evil that I am touting publicly the giving that I'm doing and trying to mobilize 100,000 other people to do so. That is the kind of shit that keeps people down. They're so scared to do the right thing because somebody might say something hurtful. 
somebody might say something judgmental to them. And so this tide is never going to turn until you, which you're doing a great job of, until me, until everybody else will give out loud part of the time. When you give out loud, here's what happens. You spark the chain reaction that empowers somebody else to do the same thing. They see you buy coffee for somebody uh, in a Starbucks line. What do they do? They're like, oh, I'm going to do the same thing for the guy behind me and behind me and behind me and behind me, right? You start that chain reaction by giving them the idea because they see you do it out loud. And so the bigger and more grand that you give out loud, the more that you will help mobilize people to think it's okay or give them the idea or the inspiration to go give as well. Now, the question I get the most is, am I supposed to show all the giving I do or am I supposed to show none of it? And the answer is somewhere in between that feels good to you. Don't give in the dark the entire time. You can't inspire anybody. You actually are multiplying your dollars donated when you give out loud. Think about that once. If I give in the dark and I don't tell anybody ever about it, all the young entrepreneurs that are up and coming that, that look up to me, they don't have giving as part of their DNA because nobody gave out loud and led by example. So my dollars given in the dark did no good other than to help that cause. When my dollars are donated out loud where people can see, then I am demonstrating, demonstrating to the up and coming individuals that will have excess money what they are supposed to be doing with that money. Otherwise, nobody inspires them to become a giver. So you need to find a sweet spot in the middle between giving in the dark and giving out loud. I completely understand why it is so important for us to turn around this, this block and, and start that chain reaction. But I'm curious what steps we can take to actually do that. Like, Would you say it is just a matter of practice and ignoring the naysayers to become more comfortable doing this? Or is there anything you recommend about how to give out loud in a way that feels good instead of you know, kind of slimy or uncomfortable? What a great question. So it's, it's a muscle like anything else. And you have to develop it on a regular basis. And you're going to be really sore when you first start doing the workout, right? So when, when you haven't been in the gym in, in months or years and you go and after that first day, you're like, oh my God, I can hardly get up on my chair. And the next day is even worse, right? That's what it feels like. The equivalent of that when you give out loud is somebody saying something. Oh, look at you sharing that on Facebook. Why would you share that? Oh, look at you giving for the wrong reason. Why would you do that? Oh, your ego's out of control. That's the second day soreness of the workout. You need to keep going anyway. And those people will drop off because when you show up in a way that you haven't showed up before, that invites people, by the way, to judge how you're showing up. Wait a minute, you changed. Whoa, whoa, whoa. This is not part of the agreement. You changed. What the hell are you doing? But right after you get past that hump, when you show up the same way again and again and again in this new way, those people, now they fall to the wayside because their moment of shock is over. And now you can show up the way you want to show up. So it's getting over that hump. It's getting past that initial soreness, so to speak, in the example of giving out loud and becoming the person who's just known for giving out loud. And again, it shouldn't be like braggadocious either because then that'll do the opposite effect and turn people off. Find a beautiful sweet spot in the middle where you're doing it in an inspiring way and you're not showing everything you do, but you're certainly not doing everything in the dark because that doesn't inspire anybody. 
Now, let's talk about debt for a second, because you mentioned in your story that, that this is something that you and Lori had to deal with. And I know that debt is a big thing that holds people back from both giving and from developing the mindset that's necessary to get out of that situation and start building wealth. Could you talk a little bit about debt and you know, what you would say to someone who's you know, really in the weeds dealing with, with that? I've got a lot to say on this. There's two different types of debt out there. There's good debt and bad debt. So good debt would be taking out a $50,000 business loan, knowing that you're going to turn it into $500,000 over the next 12 months. And knowing that you wouldn't be able to start that business without that business loan. That's good debt, right? It's really money that you are taking, that you're leveraging to invest in something that you know you're going to have control over. Bad debt is credit card debt for shoes, bags, clothes, fancy cars you don't need yet, houses you don't need yet, trips you don't need yet, anything that feeds the ego. So if it feeds the business or if it feeds your future investments, it's good debt. If it feeds the ego, it's bad debt. And what Lori and I had back when we hit rock bottom was a whole bunch of ego-driven debt, right? So number one is, is learn to kind of know the difference between the two. Number two is try and stay, even good debt, try and stay away from debt for as long as you possibly can. Bootstrap your businesses until you know for a fact that you can no longer bootstrap that business. For those that don't know what that means, it means reinvesting your profits, reinvesting your own money in your business over and over and over again, instead of taking out and spending on something stupid. Bootstrap your businesses as long as you can so that you don't have the overhead of debt or so that you don't have the obligation of other business partners that you didn't necessarily want in the first place. So the two answers are one, there's good debt and bad debt, understand the difference. Number two, stay away from both types as long as you possibly can until you need that cash injection to get to the next level. And so for people who are in that situation, they have bad debt, they're trying to crawl out of it. You know, do you have any specific strategy that, that you recommend for getting out of debt? For sure, for sure. Number one, get bigger than the problem. Here's where people go wrong. They're like, I've got my full-time job and I'm so busy and I know that I'm making X number of dollars a year and my outgo is equal to the X number of dollars a year, if not worse, and so I've got no way to pay this down. Start giving something up that is a short-term joy in order to make extra money, in order to get yourself out of debt because you're going to sacrifice the next couple of years in order to live all the years after that in an extraordinary way that you are not on track to live. So I know it's not a sexy answer, but it's the real answer. There's too many people looking for the shortcut, the system, the this, the that. Stop watching TV. Stop going on Instagram. Stop going out for freaking ice cream every single night. Stop doing the things that bring you short-term joy and trade that time to create extra money in order to get bigger than the problem. That, that is a phrase that Lori and I adopted back when we were making our comeback and we have used it ever since. Some big hurdle ends up in front of us. We say, all right, how do we get bigger than the problem? And it's the most empowering question you can ask yourself. That's number one. Number two, there is a system that is very effective. Where most people go, and I don't know if anyone follows Dave Ramsey. I'm a huge fan of most of what he teaches, not everything. But one of the things that he teaches really well is the debt snowball. And what that is, is paying off your debts in order of smallest amount first, smallest balance first, parlaying what you were making on monthly payments on that smallest amount once it's gone into the next smallest, 
And then once you pay off that next smallest, now there's two payments you're free of, right? See how your shovel, your tool's getting bigger? Now roll that into the third largest and the fourth largest and so on. So you're working your debts in reverse. Most people don't understand this. Most people go the other way. They're like, what's my biggest debt with the highest interest rate? And they say, I'm going to start putting money towards that. The problem is it never frees up any extra money because they never pay it down to zero. They just put dents in it. So they feel like they're broke. They feel this lack of abundance the entire time because all they're doing is denting the debt. They're not getting rid of it. They're just denting, 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 and they feel broke and unhappy in the process. Go the other way. Start with the tiniest balance first. Knock it out. You feel good. You're all proud. You're like, woo, I'm actually making progress. And then you feel abundant. And when you feel abundant, it actually attracts more abundance. So make sure that you're participating in the debt snowball. And I want to return to that in a second, but really quick, do you or did you pay off debt at the expense of investing or did you still prioritize, you know, putting money in your retirement fund even while you were paying off debt? No, we paid it off at the expense of investing, knowing that once we were free of it, we would be able to control our own future. There's another place where where people go wrong. They're so protective of their little 401k or something like that saying, but it's going to compound and it's going to be better in the future while they are broke as a joke. And that's growing out of control on the other side of the fence, right? And so when that continues, I invite everyone to say, where will I be in 30 years? If what you're doing right now continues, you're going to have a 401k with, I don't know, a million bucks in it. And you're going to have a million dollars worth of debt with overhead that you can't even control. And so, yay, congratulations, you got a million dollars in retirement, million dollars in debt or a huge monthly outco, and you're going to feel broke as a joke. That's going to be a poor retirement. So now look at it the other way. Take that retirement, pay off all your debts, get back to zero, and then start investing in your future. Then start investing in businesses with residual income. You mentioned network marketing earlier. I love that, that industry. Then start investing in your 401k and in low fee index funds, things that are not sexy, but will give you the best returns with the lowest hidden fees. That is the route that you want to go. Well, so you mentioned abundance mindset and you know how that really attracts more and more to you. And this is something that I believe very strongly in, but I have trouble explaining it to people in a way that doesn't you know, make it seem like it's just woo-woo or wishful thinking. Could you talk a little bit about that? Part of it is woo-woo and the other part of it is logical. And I invite people to entertain the woo-woo. Listen, every remarkable, successful individual that I hang around and that I've gotten to know, they embrace the woo-woo in a way that everybody else judges. It's fascinating. The more you start to hang around, I mean, huge accomplishment individuals, you realize just how weird they think. And weird, I'm saying that in a funny, judgmental way. So embrace the woo-woo, number one. Number two, here's how I can help the logical person that is not ready to embrace the woo-woo understand an attitude of abundance and how it creates more abundance. So when you wake up in the morning, if you feel broke and crappy, that probably creates a situation where you're kind of crabby and you're kind of turning people off and they kind of don't want to work with you. And if you're making sales calls, you're not going to close as many of them. And, you know, if you come across somebody really positive that has a great opportunity for you, if you're just kind of broke and crabby, they're like, ah, oh, you're not the one I want to share this with, right? Logically, if you don't have an attitude of abundance, you're coming across as somebody that nobody wants to work with. And so you're not going to get the opportunities that are going to bring you abundance. Now, let's flip that script. If you wake up and first thing in your mind and out of your mouth is a mantra, and then you go from mantra to a quick gratitude prayer, taking inventory of everything you do have 
so you can realize how abundant you actually are. Then, you know, reading a few pages of a book that inspires you and, you know, doing the right things to get into a, you know, doing your meditation, doing the little easy things that anybody can do, no matter how broke you are, no, how, no matter how busy you are, doing those things, it makes you show up as a different person. You're starting to show up as a person who feels abundant, who people want to be around, who when you come across that person at the coffee shop later that day who has a good opportunity, they actually want to share that opportunity with you because you're not so humdrum and down and out. You kind of see what I mean? Like people want to work with and offer opportunities to people that are inspiring, happy, and exciting to be around. They are not going to offer you a break or a job or an opportunity or an investment if you are somebody who is down and out and crabby and giving off bad energy. Nobody wants to work with those people. So when you wake up with an attitude of abundance, just from a logical standpoint, when you wake up to a gratitude practice, it affects the way you show up later in the day. And you're like, wow, I can't believe this opportunity came to me. Wow, I can't believe this person came to me. I can't believe this thing just fell in my lap. It's not magic. It's logic that people want to work with those who have that little shiny shell on them. They don't want to work with somebody who's like dull and brown. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. It makes complete sense. And so, you know, once someone has, they've, you know, used the debt snowball, they've gotten out of that hole and they're, they're kind of just, just humming along. I've heard you talk in the past about the struggle of taking your life from good to great. What are your thoughts on that? So the gap from good to great is probably just as empty feeling, just as depressing as the gap from struggling to good. It really is, if not worse. Here's why. When things are good, you can actually see the great life. When things are good, you, can, you actually get a taste once in a while of people that are being great. And it's this reminder, it's this mirror that you're not doing what it takes to get there. Now, here's the danger though. Not only does the gap feel crappy, it does not feel crappy enough to make you take action because things are down and out and horrible. They're good. And when, when humans take action, it's always to gain pleasure or to avoid pain. And the stronger of the two, by the way, by far, is to avoid pain. So when things are good, there's not enough pain to spring you into action to do the scary things that it takes to be great. When things are good, it's way easier to say, well, I would love to be great, but I don't want to screw up this good that I've got going on right now. So I'm just going to kind of stay right here because it's kind of safe. It probably feels, no, not probably, it does. You are trapped more when things are good than when you are totally down and out and have nothing to lose. So the scariest place you can be, quite honestly, is that no man's land of good. That's where most people get stuck. Yeah, and I'd love to tie that back to the, you know, one of the first things you talked about, that if you are in that, that chasm from good to great, up-level your tribe, you know, join a mastermind, get yourself around people who you know, are where you want to be. And would you agree that's the fastest way to get out of that? It's the fastest way. You should be in the rooms that scare you. You should join the masterminds that you have to talk your way into. Like when they're like, you have to be at 500 grand and be in here. If you're at 400, be like, I'm at 400, but look at the last three months show this and, and I want to be in that room. And here's what I'm going to do. You should always find the tribe that you barely don't belong in yet. Not the one that you fit nice and comfortably in. Always find the tribe that you barely don't quite fit in yet. Talk your way into it. Add value to that tribe. Because that is the fastest way to the next level, time and time and time again. 
I definitely hope that everyone listening is taking notes. I know that this has been so helpful for me. And Chris, I can't tell you how much I appreciate everything you have shared. Now, we are running out of time, so I'd like to move into what I call the impact round. So I'm going to ask you a series of short questions, and I'd like for you to respond with the first answer that pops into your head. You ready? I love it. Yeah. So who has been the most impactful person in your journey to do well and achieve financial success? My wife, not just because she's my wife, but she's the one that forced us to go down the path of self-development and speaks life into me when, when I'm just stuck and good. Awesome. And for everyone listening, Lori is going to be coming on the podcast as well, which I'm so excited about. So definitely stay tuned to hear more about her. Then who has been the most impactful person, Chris, in feeding your drive to do good and really make an impact? Ah, awesome question. I think network marketing, you asked for a person. But when Lori and I got involved in network marketing eight years ago, it's one of our business verticals. I was introduced to a world of not only self-development, but also a world of giving. Like they gave out loud to a good cause. At the time, the company that we're associated with um, would always give to Make-A-Wish Foundation. I had always been a generous individual, but it was having the opportunity to see people giving in a big, big way and be celebrated for it that made me like decide to speed it up and embrace it. And I, I don't want to go on too big of a tangent, but I'm curious, you know, what do you say to people who, you know, just automatically give that whole industry such a bad rap? It gets a bad rap because everyone's allowed to try. I want you to think about the NFL. Everyone's not allowed to put on a uniform and go out there and try. There's a very select few that get to try. I want you to think about getting a job, becoming a doctor. Everyone's not allowed to put on a stethoscope and a, a white jacket and go try. There's a very big barrier of entry and only the qualified people get in. Network marketing is open to everyone, including the people that do it wrong, the people that do it unethically, the people that do it you know, in an annoying way, the people that try it for five minutes and say it doesn't work. So because everyone who is allowed to try, that also includes the number of people who were not yet qualified to succeed in it, and they become the loud evidence of it doesn't work. Gosh, I'm so glad I asked because I know I look back on my experience there with so much gratitude because it's the thing that introduced me to personal development and is, is ultimately the reason that I am sitting here today talking to you, you know, as a, as a business owner. So that is, that's awesome. And Chris, when you're having a bad day, what do you do to get yourself out of the funk? Meditate or work out is the best way. Change my body, change my state. Do you have a meditation app you especially like? No, um, I'm a visualization person. So I put on music that I like and I just force myself into visualization. I love that. What book do you find yourself recommending to people most often? Tuesdays with Maury, because as you become more and more successful and more and more busy, it's a great reminder of what actually matters in life so you stay grounded. Awesome. I'll check that one out. Man, what is one thing on your bucket list, Chris? Mm, a lot more tattoos and... Definitely going to Monaco for the Formula One races that they have there. That's got to be an epic experience. <laughs> nice. And then last one of these, what is the best piece of advice on success that you would give to our listeners? So many of them. Consistency cures all. Action cures all. Clarity comes from trial and error. Like sitting on the sidelines waiting for that inspiration or waiting for that idea doesn't solve a thing. The only way you get there is by trying and getting feedback, trying and getting feedback, trying and getting feedback over and over again. Awesome. And 
As you know, Chris, here on the show, we do have what I call the do well and do good challenge. So this is where we encourage our listeners who want to give back to contribute to the nonprofits that are nominated by our guests. So could you tell us which organization you'll be nominating and why it's so meaningful to you? For sure. Pencils of Promise. So Pencils of Promise was started by somebody who has now become a friend. His name's Adam Braun. And as introduced by my friend, Lewis Howes. And they build schools and sustainable education in third world countries. And they also, at these schools, teach proper hand washing. I know that sounds like the funniest thing anyone's ever heard, but one of the number one reasons why children in third world schools end up dropping out and not getting an education is because nobody teaches them or builds the facilities for proper hand washing to get rid of germs. And then they remain sick all the time. And then before you know it, they miss too much school and they stop going. So Pencils of Promise has it really dialed in and all of the money that you donate goes towards these schools. And I got to go to Guatemala this past February and be boots on the ground, working on the schools, seeing the school that we had donated, doing, like being among everybody there. And you realize that this is not like somebody else's problem. This is not like, hey, I'm great over here in in North America. And well, somebody else is going to help those people because it's the right thing to do. What you realize actually is that the world has become a very small place and you are going to have a cap in what you're able to accomplish in life for as long as there is a huge portion of the world that is starving and not contributing and not being educated. It's going to continue to drag everybody down and people don't realize that. I love that you nominated that organization. I have heard several people talking about it the last few months. And so it's been front of mind and it's unbelievable the work that they're doing. So we will link to that in the show notes and definitely um, check back when we do the vote for the Do Well and Do Good Challenge because Pencils of Promise will absolutely be highlighted there. That is so cool that you do that. Thank you. Thank you. Well, everyone listening, I want to encourage you to go check out For the Love of Money because if you like this show, you are going to love Chris's podcast. So wherever you consume podcasts, you can find it. And then after that, Chris, where can they go to learn more about you, about your mastermind and see everything you've got going on? So Dorothy, number one, thanks for having me on. Um, If you want to find more and interact with me, Instagram is the only platform I'm on these days. Chris W. Harder on Instagram. And go to fortheloveofmoney.com to consume the podcast. Go to fortheloveofmoney.com forward slash mastermind to check out the mastermind options there. Great. Thank you so much for joining us, Chris. It's been a lot of fun. Totally my pleasure, Dorothy. Well, everyone, that's our show. Now, before I sign off, I want to introduce any new listeners to how the Do Well and Do Good Challenge works. There are two ways that you can participate. The first is if you are looking to do more to give back, I encourage you to contribute to Pencils of Promise or any of the organizations nominated by our guests. Once you do that, send a screenshot of your receipt to challenge at dowellanddogood.co. Your donation will be included in our monthly tally of the tangible impact this podcast is having. The second way you can participate is absolutely free, and that is by voting. See, each month on the first, we host a vote inside of our free Facebook community to determine which of the nonprofits nominated that I will donate 10% of my advertising agency's income to. 
It's a great way to make your voice heard. And we've been able to donate to some incredible organizations that are doing good in the world. So head over to our free Facebook community at dowellanddogood.co backslash Facebook. Once you're inside the group, I'm also sharing tips, ideas, resources, and more to help you both increase your income and your impact. Once again, the URL to get there is dowellanddogood.co backslash Facebook. I'll see you on the inside and thank you from the bottom of my heart for listening.